Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So today you're going to hear my conversation with the actor Jeffrey Wright. If you're not as familiar with Jeffrey, I mean, you want to talk about versatility. This is someone who can kind of play anyone and has. So Jeffrey first got famous because he played a, a gay nurse in the Broadway version of Angels in America. And he was treating um, the historical character Roy Cohen, who was dying of AIDS, but who want, refused to admit that he was gay, refused to admit that he had AIDS. And, and Jeffrey gets a lot of attention from that. Then he plays the legendary artist Jean-Michel Basquiat in a film made by one of Basquiat's contemporaries. David Bowie was also in this film. I mean, Jeffrey Wright was just a kid. Jeffrey Wright plays a black nationalist in Boardwalk Empire. He plays James Bond's buddy in a bunch of those movies. He plays a programmer who is conflicted by his use of AI in the show Westworld. I should probably watch that one again, to be honest. So the conversation you're going to hear today is with a true actor. Someone they call an actor's actor. But for this part, I have to do a little bit of work to tell you what his new movie is about. Because as much as I really loved it and I found it really thought-provoking, I did have a hard time describing it to people afterwards. I sort of say that to Jeffrey and he helps me out. I'll just tell you now that the movie is called American Fiction. Jeffrey plays a frustrated and underappreciated writer named Thelonious or Monk Ellison. His books had not been selling. His mom needs to be put in a care home, which is incredibly expensive. He sees this trend of black authors sort of writing black narratives for white audiences to call brave and gritty, which leads to him writing his own book. And anyway, I'll let, I'll let Jeffrey explain. But with all that said, why did Jeffrey say this character felt the most like him? What does he want you, if you're struggling to take care of your aging parents, what does he want you to think about in this movie? And right before this conversation, news came out that Jeffrey was nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Performance by an Actor. So for like a real actor's actor, do these nominations or awards even matter? Here's my conversation with Jeffrey Wright. It's kind of an odd aspect in some ways of what we do all of a sudden we become competitors to fellow artists and it's strange and you know it's kind of the shiny stuff that glitters around our work when i'm on set if there are any thoughts about such things that kind of filter into my head i immediately have a series of buttons that i press to delete <laughs> all of it because it's completely distracting from the core thing which is obviously the story that we're telling and the and the way we're going about doing that so yeah, it, but it, it, obviously now, if uh, you know we're getting this type of attention, it means that the film is being well received. Uh, it also means we're getting a lot of support from the studio, which is nice. Uh, MGM, uh, Orion, uh, Amazon are uh, excited about it, and so it's better than the alternative, <laughs> where yeah, there is yeah, no yeah, interest yeah, yeah. and there's no support. Yeah. So you know, given the two, yeah, we'll take this, and I suppose. If they have to hand these things out, then sure we'll take them. But um, but but really, I'm 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 more proud of the film that we made, 
and that people are taking it in and uh, and finding a bit of themselves inside of it and enjoying it. So, well, let's talk a little bit. I, I usually, in the um, introduction to to these interviews, try to summarize the plot as as best I can, but I, I didn't in this case because I feel like there's so much to the film, and I kind of wanted to hear it from you. But I, I will say that your character is um, feeling uh, conflicted. Uh, frustrated and perhaps underappreciated in his career um, and in his the dynamics within his family. Um, what Tell us a little bit about what's at the heart of Monk's frustration. Well, Monk is an academic and a writer. He, he writes uh, from a perspective of intellectual and creative freedom. His interests are his own, but he writes things that are kind of esoteric, reinterpreting Greek mythology and, 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 and the like. In the book, which the film is based on, a book called Erasure by a writer named Percival Everett, Monk has these moments where he drifts off and meditates about fly fishing and the intricacies of outsmarting a fish or woodworking. He's, it, they're wonderful because it shows the kind of peculiarities of his interest for a man like him as perceived by the outside world. And it also shows this kind of lovely um, kind of uh, solitude in the side of him, which we see in the film. But so he's his own guy, he writing from that perspective. But nobody wants to buy his stuff. They're not interested. Those few people who still read aren't interested in buying his books. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. So out of frustration, he decides to write uh, an urban novel, you know, kind of a a novel for the masses. Uh, He encounters the work of a writer played by Issa Rae, and he feels that this this work is beneath him. So out of, you know, out of spite, he writes this novel under assumed name and it blows up. It's the biggest selling novel of his career. And at the same time, his family is going through crisis after crisis, and he finds himself at the center of that, having to be caretaker of his mother, but in a larger sense of the family as well. So while he's he's forced now uh, to live this dual identity as uh, himself, but also this character, Stag R. Lee, who's written this book, uh, 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 allegedly, um, he's dealing with the ordinariness of... of of family life. And so what's wonderful about the two aspects of the film is is it plays on the tropes and stereotypes of, you know, a perception of what uh, a man like him is supposed to be a black man in America while at the same time his life is just like anyone else's. Mm. Um, and and the humanness that we show there contrasts wonderfully with the ridiculousness of the other side. Cord Jefferson who adapted the uh, the, the the book uh, and directed the film has really done a wonderful job of balancing the many aspects of the story. He did say that you were his only pick for this role. He did say, my understanding is he said to you, I, I need you to do this film for me and there's no plan B. No plan B. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why, now, why do you think he, he said that to you? Well... I, I, I'm not exactly sure why. I obviously had seen my work. He appreciated what I what I'd done, and um, and he saw himself in this character and in this in this book. And I think, in some ways, there are some similarities between Cord and I. And he saw me, uh, you know, in this role. I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm glad he did because uh, when I read the script, I connected with it on a 
couple of levels, but particularly connected to the story of a man who's asked to be caretaker to his mother and to his family. He's like the you know the the little boy with his thumb in the dike of his uh, of his of his family. It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's crumbling around but, him, and I could appreciate that. I was going through. Uh, uh, an experience that's very similar to that when I received the script, and so it 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 touched me on a on an intimate level. Obviously, I wouldn't get you to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, but you, you were going through an experience like that, like you had to you had to go from caretaker as a child to caretaker. Yes, yes, in in a flash. Well, Cord mentions that his mother had passed. Uh, a few years before he read the book and that, you know, he had to become caretaker to her for uh, for some time along with his siblings. Likewise, my mother passed uh, both from cancer. My mother passed uh, about a year before I, a year or so before I received the script. I had the good fortune of being raised by two women, my mm-hmm. mother and my aunt, her eldest sister, who is now 94 years old. Still with us. She's still with us. God love her. Uh, yeah, retired nurse. Her mind is sharper than mine. And... Uh, <laughs> But but she came to live with us in New York uh, after my mom passed, and of course I have two kids who are now college age. But all of a sudden, uh, you know that um, that delusion that we live under when we're younger—that life gets easier as you get older—just evaporated very quickly. And 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 it also asks for sa- sacrifices on the personal level and the. You know there are distractions to your professional life and all of that. It's it's a it's a complicated time, but it's a necessary time. So that's very much at the center of Monk's uh, circumstances in this film, and it's also it's also an experience that many have had and many will have. And so people that have seen the film and the film is, in, is was just released on a limited basis in America now, but people have seen it multiple times somehow because we've had a lot of screenings, but they've connected to that aspect of it. You know, my mother had Alzheimer's and I was asked to, you know, I was, uh, you know, tasked with taking care of her or, you know, my brother and sister are exactly like that. I mean, it's really wonderful because yes, this is a family uh, that's populated by by Tracy Ellis Ross and Sterling K. Brown and the incredible Leslie Uggams and a wonderful actor named Myra Lucretia Taylor who plays the caretaker of since we were children of the family. Um, it's a family of black folks, but it's a family that's, you know, as a friend of mine says, put the fun in dysfunction. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's maddening, but at the same time, despite of itself, loving like any other family. And so people across backgrounds have really found themselves, you know, uh, in this film in wonderful ways. And I think particularly at a time, at least in America, that's so incredibly divisive, it's a, it's a, it's a good thing if it only lasts for the two hours that the film uh, yeah, you know that the film play takes place. I tell you, I tell you what I think that the film gives no easy answers to anything. Yeah, it gives no easy answers to the family dynamics part of it. Right. Like you know, when I was, when I could, you know, you start thinking about this stuff as you get older yourself. You yeah. know, and my, my father passed on a, few, a little while ago, so I'm you start, sorry. you start, well, you know, you start thinking about this kind of thing. You yeah. know. And, you know, I was watching the film and I was thinking to myself, oh, there's no real lesson here. The lesson here is just that, you know, life gets complicated as you get older. And I thought that was the lesson of the other plot as well. I mean, you mentioned that um, your character Monk, 
He's living in this world where, I mean, he's living in our world where the publishing industry, the media industry, the, criti the criti critical industry, what people buy tends to treat, if I can say this, like tends to treat blackness as sort of a monolith. Mm. That there's only sort of one appropriate black, type of black story that gets labeled as brave. And these are qualities that we that we want. And so I was, I was sort of watching the film waiting for the lesson. And then your character sort of gets criticized again sure. towards the end. A very complicated film, even when it, when it talks about that part of the plot, too. Sure. I think the attempt is to try to raise the level of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, Percival Everett, the writer of the novel, and Cord are fluent in these issues, in the issues of race and identity and language and context and history and all of that. So they provide a platform for a lively, smart discussion, which, again, particularly in America— uh, is not often and most often not the case. We're super dumb. Uh, we lack a fluency in these things. And even though race and identity uh, uh, inform all of us, even when we want to deny it every day and have since the beginning of our country, we, we're afraid to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about it. And so we never really have productive conversations around, uh, around these issues. And, and we progress not at all. In this case, what we've, I think we've done is provided uh, an invitation for better questions, a livelier, smarter uh, dialogue. We're not trying to provide answers, but um, we're inviting everyone to uh, to join us in this conversation and have a bit of a laugh at it at the same time. So um, it's um, yeah, it's 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 well again. Go, I give credit to Cord to Cord for the way he he managed it. Um, it's uh, it's unfortunately I think a rare thing. <laughs> could, could could you relate to? I understand how you can relate to Monk on the uh, family side of the plot. Could you could you relate to Monk on the other side of the plot as well? Yeah, certainly there are you know, pressures and expectations from the outside that I've felt. I don't think, however, that one, the criticisms, if there are criticisms in our film, are targeted only at the outside. I think there is an inward gaze, too, that suggests that even within the black community, maybe we take on some of these, uh, you know, these this external disparagement and and call it our own. Sometimes we don't act from a point of view necessarily of 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 appreciating the freedoms that we have or the uh, appreciating the, the the creative liberties that we have. That we're still stuck somehow in the rut of external expectations or perceptions of who we are. So we're kind of in this film. Uh, Equal opportunity misanthropes. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Throwing yeah, darts, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, 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 360 yeah. degrees. But so, yes, I mean, I have experienced some of the pressures uh, from a creative standpoint. But at the same time, what I've tried to do throughout my career is focus on what I could, uh, what I could handle and what I could control, which was my work. And I've tried to be flexible in the way that I work. One, because I thought that's how you do it. You, you, you went about it. I loved Dustin Hoffman, for example, played one character in Marathon Man, another in Midnight Cowboy, and then another entirely in All the President's Men. I loved that way of acting. So that's what I tried to learn and tried to build as an actor. And as a result, it allowed me this flexibility to go from Westworld to James Bond to Basquiat to to uh, Muddy Waters and Cadillac Records to this film now and to Wes Anderson. It's, you know, I, I enjoy 
being able to invite myself and feel comfortable in many different types of creative rooms and literal rooms as well. So, yeah, the pressures are there, but also um, I think we have to give ourselves credit at times for having more agency, power, and freedom than perhaps we, we, um, you know, we, we often do. You mentioned your, your aunt was a nurse. Yeah. Is, is it, well, she's a retired nurse. And your mom was a... Was My a mom was a lawyer. Yeah. How do you end up in TV and film and, and, and how, do you, how do you end up... How does that... Because you're not a Nepo baby, are you? No, no, not by any... <laughs> by, uh, no, not by any means. Um, it, there's a really very simple uh, explanation as to why. My mother also used to take me to the theater when I was uh, younger. The live theater? Live theater regularly, more so than films. There was another um, uh, husband of a cousin of hers who lived near us who used to take us to the cinema, but my mom would take us to see all of the shows that toured from New York that came through Washington, D.C., where I grew up. So we'd go to the Forge Theater, the National Theater, the Warner Theater, and we'd see everything from Annie to to Give Him Hell Harry, which was a one-man show with James Whitmore about Harry Truman. I saw a one-man show with Avery Brooks about Paul Robeson. Saw uh, Intazaki Shange's For Colored Girls. Uh, Saw that incredible play. Saw... Uh, you know, it's just everything, a range of things. And I was just enthralled by those evenings. And I was so, you know, I'm eight years old. The curtain goes down at the end of the show and my eight-year-old brain is telling me that, no, the world of the play carries on even behind the curtain. <laughs> I was just, I was just really taken in. And so that planted the seed in my head. I didn't do anything in high school. I was kind of afraid of it. In fact, the actor in my class at my school who did... Eugene O'Neill and Bertolt Brecht and all of these things. He's now a senator from Colorado, Michael Bennett, very good friend of mine. Right. And I went on to college. I was a political science major and I started acting my junior year. Well, why were you afraid of it? You just said I was afraid of it. I don't know. I don't know. Afraid of what? I I would have, even then, even though I wasn't doing it for some reason, I would have dreams. I remember vividly of being on stage at school and the words not coming and, you know, my mouth unable to, it was just the oddest thing. And I, yeah, I just ran away from it until I couldn't anymore. My junior year of college and then I took a class, I did a play that was kind of a collection of monologues about a book called, uh, based on a book called Bloods about the recollection of black Vietnam veterans um, who had come back home. Yeah. And I took this, uh, took, did that, which was a wonderful experience. I took this class, and the first day of that class, I said, hmm, I kind of like it here. I think I've found something that fits me. And, uh, and, and that was it. And here I am today talking to you, Tom. I, it, it all, they say it all led to this moment. It, uh, it was all, no, <laughs> this was the entire purpose, Tom, was to be here now. They taught you in the class. Table. They said, listen, you, you might get an Oscar out of it. You might get a gold globe. But truly, pu- Canadian public radio. That's exactly is where, the you wanna be. That's let me, where you want to be. Let me play a clip from some of your early work. Take a listen to this. You don't talk to me like that when I'm holding something this sharp, or I might slip and stick it in your heart if you have a heart. Oh, I do! Tough little muscle. Never bleeds. I'll bet. Now, I've been doing drips a long time. I can slip this in so easy you think you were born with it. Or I can make it feel like I just hooked you up to a bag of liquid Drano. (laughs) So you'd be nice to me. 
Jeffrey, tell me what we just heard. Oh, wow. That is from Angels in America on Broadway, 1993-94, with the late, wonderful Ron Liebman playing Roy Cohn and, uh, and, 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 and me playing uh, Belize. Wow. That was pretty cool. What, wow. goes, what goes through your mind hearing that? Oh, man. I immediately, even though I'm on stage at that point, but I was immediately taken backstage to... Um, to those nights doing the show and hearing the play. That's one of the wonderful things, particularly with a play like that, that's such an extraordinary piece of writing and was so, for lack of a better word, important at the time that we were doing it. And it was, um, you get to hear those words every night. You're on stage with them, but then you're backstage. And so the play becomes just imprinted into your brain. And I was just, that was just... I've had the good fortune at times, and particularly then, maybe it started then, of being in a place um, with, a, with a project and thinking to myself consciously, I am where I'm supposed to be in my life right now. And uh, yeah, that took me back there. Yeah. I could tell it had an effect on you when I was oh, playing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was, uh, yeah, that was amazing. That, and I was spoiled at the beginning of my career right. to have that. I mean, I was relatively early. I'd been in New York for about seven years working in the theater before I got that, uh, that, that job. But it was only in the middle of doing that job that I finally was able to say to myself, you're an actor now. And again, it was, it was, uh, it was the marriage of two interests too, acting, storytelling with my political interests. There was a friend of mine from college who said to me one night, he came to visit me. He was a super interesting guy, uh, uh, super smart. And he'd say he would, we would be drinking bourbon, you were a kid, you know, late night, yeah. you know, talking. And he'd, and he said, he said, you know, Jeffrey, the theater is the highest calling. I think he went to medical school after. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, you know, this was so strange. This was probably six years before I did. He said, one day you're going to do a play that announces the death of Reagan. And I said, well, that's interesting. But then I thought back, I said, what, George, what were you doing? What kind of crystal ball were you looking at? Because the play was about, it was about these people trying, as the play ends, to strive for more life. But it was also about the resistance to recognizing the humanity and the validity of these men and who were uh, sick with this disease and those who were confronted by it. And uh, and denying them their citizenship, and particularly pointing to con, you know the conservative political response to that led by Ronald Reagan, and so um, anyway, it was it was just as well we did that play when the crisis was still pretty hot in mm -hmm, America, mm -hmm. and there were times I would look out in the audience, and there were people who were clearly sick with the disease, mm -hmm. people in wheelchairs, and things oh, like that. It was just. It was just good, you know, it was good stuff. It was meaningful stuff. And yeah, it spoiled me to the idea that we could work at a pretty high level in this, in this field. Yeah. Coming up more on my conversation with the actor Jeffrey Wright. Uh, you'll hear him talk about his time playing the legendary painter Jean-Michel Basquiat. Even if you're not a visual art kind of person, uh, stick around for some great stories about hanging out on set with David Bowie. Plus, the Canadian star of what was once the big HBO show Gossip Girl, Jordan Alexander, will be here to premiere for you her new song. I'm Tom Power. Key is back after this. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. 
Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Dennis Hopper and Chris Walken and 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 Gary Oldman and Willem Dafoe, all of them were like, you know, they were like, I was like, I wanted to work like those guys, particularly Gary Oldman as an actor. It wasn't a bad way to start out uh, as a lead in a film. Uh, it was pretty cool. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the actor Jeffrey Wright. Just to catch you up, uh, the film he's talking about there in that clip was the film that sort of considered his breakout role. Jeffrey is one of the most respected actors anywhere right now. But that all kind of started when he played the late painter Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, the incredibly important and influential black artist who died when he was just 27. Jeffrey played him in the 1996 film Basquiat. Jean-Michel's work has gone on to become some of the most highly valued art at auction anywhere, and Jeffrey and I talk a little bit about that. I should mention the first part of our conversation is all about Jeffrey's role in the really thought-provoking, great, and messy film American fiction. But here in this part of our conversation, we were talking about Basquiat. In my research, I found this quote where Jeffrey said back then that he felt a kinship with Jean-Michel. I asked him what he meant by that. Well, he was a young, creative guy. He was on, you know, the Lower East Side of Manhattan. He was from Brooklyn, but was doing a lot of work on the living on the Lower East Side and, you know, downtown Manhattan. That was a wild place back then in the 80s, wild and free. It was wonderful. And uh, when I came to New York, that's where I lived. Um, I ended up, I now have friends who were friends of his. I kind of, you know, I didn't, I moved there the month before he passed, but I was kind of traveling in similar circles. And as well, so I understood that part of yeah. him. And as well as an artist, he was drawing from a similar reservoir, I think, that I draw from in terms of, if you look at his work, his references to American history through the the lens of, of, of black folks, his homages to people like Muhammad Ali, Miles Davis, uh, the undiscovered genius of the Mississippi Delta. Those are all... Uh, people and forces that are very close to me that I draw from as well. I just got him. I got his language, his visual language and his poetic language, which is really beautiful. Um, and so, you know, I felt, yeah, I felt a kinship with him. And the more that I learned about him, the more that I studied him, the more I kind of fell in love with him and his work. And so I felt very protective of of my side of telling his story when he did that film, particularly because there were not a lot of people outside of the art world who were aware of him. And yeah. so in some ways we were introducing him and his work to this wider global audience for the first time. And as you've seen since that film, I mean, he's become, and I'm not saying it's entirely our responsibility, of course, mm -hmm. he's, it's the responsibility lies with him and yeah. the power of his work. Yeah. But, you know, we, uh, we, we helped give a little boost to, uh, to the reception of him. But since that, I mean, he's become maybe the most popular artist uh, of the last, you know, certainly 25, 35 years. I mean, it's incredible the way that, uh, the way that he has become 
almost ubiquitous on, on, on landscapes across the world. It's pretty cool. What is that like for you when you see one of these auctions go up for, you know, $11 billion or whatever it is, these, you know? Well, I think back to the time I was in Julian Schnabel's studio. Julian directed the film, and mm-hmm. I would he was so, you know, generous with me in giving me space to paint. And I would go at any time of day, at night, and just go in and sit and paint. And I remember one day... The producers of the film uh, were also art collectors. And I remember one day being, or several days, being in, in the studio surrounded by about two dozen Basquiat's that they had, <laughs> that they had freshly purchased because they had a sense that maybe the value was going to increase. And I would use them as references for canvases that I was working on. And I would try to take a bit of this, you know, an image from here and place it here and try to create my own Frankensteinian Basquiat. Okay. But it was a way of training, uh, training myself oh, to be you, a painter. To actually, you'd actually try to make the art yourself. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this was, yeah. I spent a, I spent a good, whew, probably six months just, just painting so that I would feel at ease when we had to do it on on cam, you know, on camera. So I'm sure you were thinking, I, sh- I should have asked. A, <laughs> oh, can I have one of those? Oh yes, yes. That <laughs> that was a mistake. That was a mistake. You know, made by you know youthful, you know, enthusiasm just to be there. I did. Uh, uh, I did get a, a schnabel as a part of my pay. Yeah. But uh, yeah. That Basquiat is still out there somewhere. Waiting for you. Waiting, just waiting. Did you get to hang with David Bowie when you were making that? Oh, yeah, man. What was he like? Oh, man, he was the best. Yeah? Yeah. Super cool, super generous. The first time I met him, actually, I was in the studio, and I was there painting. It was an afternoon, and I remember door opens, and in walks David Bowie. I knew he was going to be playing Warhol, but in he walks, and I'm kind of on, on my knees painting on this camera, and he walks by. And he just kind of squats down next to me and he says, um, it, do you mind if I watch? And I said, uh, well, I, I think I'm going to have to get used to it. And we had a laugh and that was the beginning of it. And from that point on, yeah, man, he was just so cool. Bruno called. He said that people in Europe are saying you're burning a candle at both ends. Well, I think it's awful that people are talking like that. I think you should like... I don't know, stick around, prove them wrong. No one thought I could make it in the first place, you know? And then what happened, you said, yeah, but it'll never keep it up. And now they say I'm killing myself, stuff like this. But they, they, they don't want to clean up. Then they say, well, you, look, his art's dead. Um, he had meant so much to me, obviously, as, you know, more so as an artist, as a musician, of course. I mean, there were times in my life where David Bowie songs were the soundtrack. And, you know, the, and he was just... But he was so funny, yeah. so open. I've heard he was so very supportive. Funny. Yeah. yeah, man. And yeah, and then I would see him after we finished filming, and he just was, you know, ever ever gracious and 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 generous, and went, you know, and you know, yeah. He, we were in the hair and makeup trailer one day. Yeah, and David comes in. Gary Oldman is there. David comes in and he says, "Hey." Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do an accent because I'll put real sound particularly. He said, hey, you, you want to hear some music? I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, David. <laughs> he pulls out a, a, a cassette. I think we were still listening to cassettes at that time, yeah. And he plugs it in, and it's his new album. No. That has not been released, an album called Outside. Yeah. And we're listening to this thing and with David, 
and he's there's a guitarist named Reeves Gabrels who's who who uh, plays lead on this thing, and David's listening and he's air guitaring oh, to this song. And, and I'm sitting there going, wow! And it's the <laughs> most badass album. And some of the music is in the film because um, it was really in some ways so weirdly autobiographical too, or biographical as it relates to Basquiat's life. The theme of this guy and this this song, poor soul. He never knew what hit him. So then, later after we filmed, he invites me to his concert. Uh, when he came through New York with Nine Inch Nails, and he's 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 uh, he's singing largely songs from this album that most people were largely unfamiliar with. Yeah, it was like a kind of an industrial record that he had made, or very heavy. I'm afraid of Americans was on that record. I no, think. this would be prior to the. Oh, okay, 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 rather okay, that okay. that uh, song was prior. Okay. But this is really it's kind of operatic. Yes, yeah. you know this, but it's beautiful. Check it out outside. Anyway, okay. playing this thing, and I'm sitting there. And I've known this album for a while now. And yeah. it was almost like, this is my concert. You know? <laughs> I don't think the film had come out just yet. Uh, you know, But I'm like, yeah, this is me and David here, you know, <laughs> just doing a thing. No, he was, he was just brilliant, man. And, just, and he and Dennis Hopper and Chris Walken and, and, and Gary Oldman and Willem Dafoe, all of them were like, Damn. you know, they were like, I was like, I wanted to work like those guys, particularly Gary Oldman as an actor. And they were all so cool with me. It was, it was a, it wasn't a bad way to start out uh, as a lead in a film. Uh, it was pretty cool. Do, do any of these characters, maybe this is a good way to close. Uh, I was planning on closing by asking you um, whether there's parts of this character, Monk, that stay with you, you know, afterwards. But I wonder sometimes whether that's a non-actor way of thinking about things, whether you guys just take these these characters off and just move on with your day. Probably more, uh, better for the sanity to do that. Yeah. But, you know, there's certainly things that you learn from walking in another person's shoes. I Certainly that was the case with Angels in America. With this, what I love about this film and what I love about this character is yes, he's a bit of a mess. He's a bit of a curmudgeon. He's, you know, got sharp, you know, elbows and likes to, you know, throw like, you know, verbal punches here and there. Um, but he goes on a journey and he's not the same man at the end of the film that he is in the beginning. And I like that he evolves. So maybe if there's anything that I take away or I'd like to carry with me of this character is the the continuation of the evolution that you know i grow i change i get better thank you so much for coming in i always love getting the chance to talk to you thanks tom that's my conversation with the actor jeffrey wright his new film american fiction is out now I'm 
I'm John Power. You're listening to Q. Uh, that's a little bit of a new song from the Canadian artist Jordan Alexander. The song is called Leaving Toronto. It's from Jordan's upcoming debut album. It has been a big few years for Jordan Alexander. Um, she was one of the stars of one of the big HBO shows, uh, Gossip Girl, the reboot of Gossip Girl. She's also been working with the fashion label Fenty, which is the fashion house founded by Rihanna. And now Jordan has new music. I honestly didn't know Jordan made music at all. I just knew her as a model and as, a, as an actor. So I caught up with her recently over Zoom and I asked her why she wanted to make music. And I asked her why she was leaving Toronto in the first place. <laughs> yeah, so um, back in 2020, I had this incredible opportunity to go to New York and film Gossip Girl. And it was just a really tumultuous time for me. I was having like, I think the worst heartbreak I've ever experienced. Wow. And then right in the middle of that, this really super exciting thing happened. Um, and I was kind of torn because I wanted to fix things with this person I love, but then also go off and do this amazing thing. <laughs> Now, listen, I'm not. I'm not here to ask anybody's social insurance number or anything like that. <laughs> but was was this person you're, you know, who you experienced this heartbreak with? Were they in Toronto or were they away? So they were in Toronto, and because it's 2020, it's the pandemic. So like, once I leave to New York, like that's it. It's so, phone calls. Maybe like you can't see each other after that. So you were going through this heartbreak. You get this incredible opportunity to go to New York to work on sort of a, a game-changing television show. Yeah. And yeah. it's the pandemic, so there's no going, going across the border. <laughs> man, oh, man, it's exactly. a lot. Yeah, it was, it was wild, and it all happened in about the span of two weeks. Like, I had to pack up my whole life and figure all of this out in about two weeks. So I mean, I think you made intense. the right call, you know? Yeah, I mean, definitely, right? But it was a lot. Like, I just, you know when you're heartbroken, it feels like the only thing that matters? <laughs> Yeah, I do. What What yeah. about the song? When did the song come to you? Yeah, so the song came to me in that two weeks while I was like packing up my life and looking for an apartment in New York and crying on the streets of Toronto about this person. <laughs> like, so there's a lot going on. What do I even mean by it? I will always be like this keyboard on my sleeve. I wish only for a real moment worth more than a year of holding on to a false bliss. Has this person heard the song? Yes. <laughs> ah, <laughs> I'm not. What should I discern from that tone of voice you just answered that with? Yeah. Well, they everything actually kind of worked out. Like there, we are. We're still like together. We're still very much a part of each other's lives. So. Well, isn't that a happy ending? Um, yeah, you, you, it's a happy ending. <laughs> you've had a you've had a big few years, you know, between uh, Gossip Girl and you know working with Fenty. Yeah. Why Why still make music at this stage? What What does it do for you? Yeah, I mean, so that has just been my like deep love and passion. I love arts in general. Like acting is amazing, modeling is great, but there's just always been something in me that wants to songwrite and make music, and it's it is my joy in life. So I, I don't think I would ever stop, no matter what. Where do you find the time? Yeah, so kind of just in between. So I basically wrote this record that will be coming out in 2024 while I was filming Gossip Girl. Uh, so just kind of like after after I'm done shooting or maybe I come up with a line while I'm on set, something like that. What, what did it give you when you're, you know, in the, in the midst of this like really high pressure job, this really high pressure show, uh, but also one where you're, you know, you're speaking someone else's words. What did it give mm -hmm. you to be able to take those moments for yourself? 
Yeah, it was actually really important for me. It was like grounding. It reminded me who I am. You know, I'm in a new city. I'm in a new country doing this crazy thing. And I feel like it was just like, oh, yeah, like I'm just that little girl in her room playing guitar. Like it just really helped ground me. And I just love it. It's just it's it's my favorite pastime. Like if I have an hour, I'm going to do that. You want some flavor? I'll spice it up. I've been so hot because I'm the pilot, son. Them shorties piling up. You, uh, one of the folks you co-produced this record with is yes. the Canadian uh, rapper Havaya Mighty, Polaris Prize yes. winning rapper, Juno Award winning <laughs> uh, rapper, and a good friend of our show, Havaya Mighty. I didn't know she, I didn't know she produced records. Hell yeah, man! She's produced some of her own, and she's an incredible artist and musician all around. Um, yeah, and her. Uh, her other co-producer worked on my track as well. So Taboo is a very big part of this. The three of us, we're, we're real tight now. So tell me a little bit about what, what, what was it like to work with, with Havaya on this? What, what's, what, what are they like to work with? Oh, Havaya is incredible. First of all, she's just like a really open-minded person. So you feel safe to like, you know, preview any of your ideas on her. And, and she just is, you know, like doesn't matter what her type of music is. Like she understands music on a whole and she'll be able to see the beauty and really help flesh out that vision. I'm, I'm so excited that you're going to be putting out this record in, in, in 2024. <laughs> How are you feeling about it? Yeah. Oh man, I, I'm feeling crazy about it. I finished the last song yesterday. So everything's <laughs> Hold on, what? Lot, yeah. what? You finished yeah. it yesterday? Yeah, I had to re-record something. So me and Taboo went back in the studio and just really quickly, you know what I mean? So everything is like officially done done now and it's like whoa <laughs> I, I hope you're getting a chance to celebrate um can you can you do me a favor before you go can you set up the song tell me who you are and introduce it oh yeah hey i'm jordan alexander and this is the premiere of my new song leaving toronto what do i even mean by it i will always be like this keep out on my sleeve i wish only for a real moment worth more than a year of holding on to a false bliss My brain's like a cave, the darkness is my safety I've become strangely pale My nails are getting in your flesh, I just wanted to caress But I am so desperate and
That is the world premiere of Jordan Alexander's new song, Leaving Toronto. Jordan is from Toronto. She starred on the HBO Max series Gossip Girl. Look for her debut album later this year. And that is it for the show today. Nice to be back. Nice to be back after a little little holiday break. I hope you had a good holiday break as well, if you got one. Tomorrow on the show, you're going to hear my conversation with Dan Levy, who you might know as the Canadian star and creator of the massive TV show Schitt's Creek. What happens after you have a hit like that? How do you follow it up? Well, Dan has finally followed up. We've been wondering that for a long time. He now has a new film out. It's called Good Grief, and he'll be here to talk a little bit about it. We'll see you soon later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.